Lord, you've said that we are to be prepared to preach in and out of season. In other words, at all times. So, Father, I pray that you'd help me to be able to focus on this passage of Scripture and the things that you have for us this day. I pray for those of us who are on the receiving end of hearing this sermon. Lord, you help them to be able to focus. Some among us are weary. Some are also coming with heavy concerns and burdens. But, Lord, we thank you that your word is alive. Your word is eternal. And your word is sharper than a two-edged sword. So, Father, we pray that your word may accomplish your purposes among us in also penetrating into our hearts and helping us see the truth of who Christ is and the glories of the gospel of grace. We pray in his name. Amen. To find your way in your Bible to Galatians chapter 3. It's also found at page 1386 in your pew Bible. We'll read that passage of scripture one more time as we've sort of slowed things down and uh, tried to expand on a couple of verses at the end of that chapter. As you're doing that, I want to start off by reflecting on years ago I attended a church where I can remember uh, hearing a member of that church stand up during one of the member meetings and this woman made her opinion known and she said something like this. She said, this church is the most beautiful church in all of this metropolitan area. I looked at my wife and thought to myself, what is she saying? I mean, it was a nice building, but good grief, you know. uh, Anyway, so she made that statement and yes, it's true that a number of people uh, greatly admired. There was a circular stained glass window in one particular wall above the balcony. But the longer I was in that church and the more I got to know the people in that church, I believe God mourned the lack of beauty in that church, specifically the church members. You say, what are you talking about? Well, majority of the members who attended that church, I found out after being there for a while, they belonged to one of two family systems. Being from West Virginia, I, I define them as the Hatfields and McCoys. <laughs> the church, sadly, had a long history of division. They were deeply divided over battles that had been waged for years and years between these two family systems. One family donated the land that the church was built on. Oh, if I heard that once, I heard it 50 times. Other family system was one that donated a lot of money to the building, whatever. But it seemed like virtually every issue that was faced with the leadership to deal with in the church all went back to this battle that continued on between the two family systems as to whether or not that family system would have their particular wishes implemented or their particular traditions sustained. It was a sorry, sorry sight in the eyes of God. Worse yet, I recall that there were several older men who absolutely stunned, shocked, and just knocked me over almost with their words. Men who served as trustees of the church, who verbally expressed, I'll never forget it, at one of the men's dinners, Ugly, ugly racial bigotry 
toward African Americans, including using the N-word right there as we were talking after the breakfast. Now that church that I just described to you, I'm convinced, looking back on it, had lost sight of the gospel of grace. They had lost sight of the beauty of what it means to relate to God on the basis of the gospel. Because the, Jesus Christ in the gospel is no longer, they were, it, Jesus was no longer front and center to these people, it seemed to me, in the gospel. But what had become focused on was a building and having traditions that they didn't want to have changed and control over what they thought was best for that particular church. And there were all these barriers that had been begun to build up higher and higher between them. And it got to be wider and wider barriers as these families just were suspicious of each, each other the whole time. All the people who married into the family system, it was very ugly. And it got worse and worse year after year after year. And as I read the scriptures, I realized that, unfortunately, divided churches are not all that uncommon. You find them even in the New Testament. Certainly not the only church also who had prejudiced members. But as I've kept on reading the scriptures, I've noticed how wonderful it is to read in the Gospels the beauty of Christ. The beauty of the gospel being lived out by Christ. How Jesus shocked people of his day. People in his day were, were, were caught up in building a particular building that they thought was the end all and the everything. Meanwhile, they were fixated not only on the building and holy places, but they were unwilling to see their need of grace. Unwilling to see the need for the gospel to melt away their own bigotry, hatred racial discord and Jesus is crossing over those borders Jesus is constantly saying things that clearly indicate he's not following that game Jesus specifically commissioned his followers to follow in his steps and to continue to move past what normally are the barriers that keep people who don't want anything to do with people who are different from them and he says my intention is for you and my followers to make disciples of all people groups that's every language group in this world you talk about diversity that's God's passion the beauty of diversity rather than just to be among your own people who are just like you and not having anything else in common with anybody else it is through the power of the Holy Spirit, that the gospel ministry in the early church began to break down those walls of racial discord. And together, we saw in the early church the amazing working of God in the Spirit to join together the rich and the poor taking the Lord's Supper at the same table. Now, one of the deep concerns, of course, Paul had for the early churches, and specifically when looking at the church of Galatia, was the tendency to distort the gospel. That the gospel was so distorted as it was going to lose, they were going to lose sight of grace. And any time we begin to lose sight of grace, my friends, very soon thereafter, there are problems going on in our view of other people and our view of ourselves. 
And clearly that was happening in these churches in this area called Galatia because they had a tendency to resist the radical transformation that the gospel brings to how believers and followers of Jesus Christ they view other people who do not share the same background, who do not share their culture, who do not share their class or gender. How the gospel comes and pushes us in a direction that's totally different than what we normally would do in keeping with the culture. Rather than being defined by how well we keep the law, or whether or not we've been circumcised or not, Paul urges those who are united to Jesus Christ by faith to live out who they are in Christ. Remember we talked earlier about the challenges of the law in previous weeks. The law does not change us on the inside. The law merely tells us how we don't measure up. And I came across helpful writing in a blog even this week uh, taken from a book soon forthcoming from Tulian Chavidian. I can't even say his name. Tulian Chavidian. He's actually the grandson of Billy Graham. And he says, the limits of the law are clearly seen. It's why we need to live by grace, because the law illuminates sin, but it is powerless to eliminate sin. The law points to righteousness, but it cannot produce it. It, it shows us what godliness is, but it cannot make us godly. The law can inform us of our sin, but it cannot transform the sinner that is in our hearts. And the law may expose bad behavior, but only grace can woo our hearts. Only grace can draw us to have us motivated to want to do things differently. And that is, my friend, what we're seeing here in this particular passage of Scripture. As Paul says, if you really understand grace, it's going to, see, it's going to affect your heart and your desire to want to live that out in the horizontal sphere of life and relationships with other people, people that are different than you, people we normally have barriers with. That's why Paul is pointing these believers, whether it's that in the first century or whether it's believers today, to, to the fact that in grace we have received in the gospel, this grace that joins us to Christ by faith, that this is the only way we will enjoy the sense of New identity, even as Tim talked about it, that we are sons of God. We are people who are heirs with Christ. We have a new identity. We are clothed with Christ. And this morning I want to talk about a third amazing concept in light of the gospel of grace that hopefully is going to help us begin to have a desire to change in how we deal with other people. And let's first of all read the scripture and then we'll talk about that third point. Looking at verse 23 of chapter 3 in Galatians. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified or declared right with God by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. 
And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Now, our main point this morning I want us to consider to consider or unpack this particular passage is found there in verse 28. We could basically say that in our relationship with other believers, despite all of the divisive social categories that often divide us, and despite all the barriers that are oftentimes in place because of all these differences, in our relationship with other believers, because of the gospel, we belong to each other. We belong to each other. All of us certainly have grown up with a long list of things that distinguish us and divide us. One of the things I do oftentimes when I lead a group and we're meeting together for the first time, I'll ask people, I'll say, tell us your name, tell us your place of birth, and tell us what you normally are involved in. And you begin to find out people are from all over the place. Not everybody is from right here in Long Island. And we all have a place where we were born that is somewhat unique, says something about us. We had nothing to do with that. We all have a certain color of our skin that people are very much aware of that helps to distinguish and divide us. Our heart language, our level of education can oftentimes divide us from other people. Our status in our jobs, meaning whether you're an owner or a boss or someone in management versus someone who's an hourly wage earner or someone who is a temporary employee. Our culture, even our gender, distinguishes us from other people. And our society has a tendency, of course, to amplify those differences. We've certainly seen that, have we not, recently in the news, about a number of situations in which we sense people are divided over very sensitive differences between people, particularly with race. And these social categories have a tendency to to, to define us, to create all these barriers between us. And obviously the curse of sin has made this much worse. I have a quote there in your notes by Timothy George. I thought he had a very helpful way of summarizing this. He says, race, money, and sex are the primal powers in human life. No one of them is inherently evil. Rather, they are the stuff of which life itself is made. Yet each of these spheres of human creativity has become degraded and soiled through the perversity of sin. Nationality and ethnicity have been corrupted by pride. Isn't that true? Absolutely that's true. Material blessings have been corrupted by greed. Absolutely true. And sexuality has been corrupted by lust. Sad, but true. The outward evidence of all this sinful corruption, we see it all around us, don't we? Every day, we see it. We've seen in our, in our time, there is still slavery going on in our world. There is sinful corruption among the racial and ethnic discrimination that still exists widely in our world. There is segregation that we've seen in our lifetime There is discrimination in the workplace. There are employees who feel as though they are not given the proper treatment in the workplace. They go on strike and protest unfair labor practices. There is sexual harassment that is an ongoing widespread problem. There are various forms of radical feminism and many, many more. These problems are all around us. 
And our society is desperately looking for ways to somehow bridge these barriers, bringing healing, bringing restoration, bringing unity. And I want to say so clearly, if I can say anything clearly today, I say this. The only solution to bringing about restoration and unity and, re- and, and healing in these areas of barriers among people in society is to be found in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of grace alone. Amen. And that is why these issues are so pertinent for our time. They're so important that we understand the gospel of grace. And that it affects our hearts and not just our affirmations. Now, having said that, getting us some strong amens, this worldly point of view of the barriers that exist between people, when we lose sight of who we are apart from grace, often makes its way back into the church. Worldly way of thinking makes its way back into the church because we lose sight of grace. And this was one of the main problems that Paul addressed in those churches in Galatia. There were a group of Jewish followers of Jesus, and they were insisting that another group of Gentiles, who also now had begun to follow Jesus, that these Gentiles had to formally and fully embrace and begin to practice all of the requirements of the Mosaic Law before those people could be considered as fully acceptable to God. So Paul directed them to what? Here we got a problem of people divided. The barriers are up, saying you cannot be a part, a full member of this fellowship, if you will, unless you do X, Y, and Z. So Paul says, okay, what's the solution here? The gospel of grace. It's the gospel, the unifying gospel of the grace. And he's saying, if a person belongs to Christ on the basis of faith, trusting in what Jesus did on the cross in paying for our sins, and in exchange for our sins, we receive the righteousness of Christ by faith, and our sins are placed on Christ. And Christ is raised from the dead, showing that those sins have fully been paid for and accomplished what God set out to do. He says, if that is your hope and trust, He says, that means that you, as a person who's embraced that, embraced Christ, another person who's embraced Christ, then you have been united to Christ no matter what. The barriers that normally divide mankind, they are broken down by the gospel. That's the point of this text. Now, having said that, I have to back up and say something here to try to clarify what the text is not saying. Verse 28. Many people come to this text of Scripture and they say, letter B in your notes, they claim that this text, verse 28, teaches that all distinctions have been destroyed in the gospel. And therefore, they claim, as proof, this text says that all the distinctions between classes of people, whether we're owners or employers or employees, men or women, everything, that, that all those distinctions no longer are valid because of the gospel. Well, the text, let me say, as a response to that, text cannot mean that. Paul did not hold that point of view. He gave a very different set of directives to husbands in Ephesians chapter 5 and Colossians chapter 3. He speaks to husbands specifically saying, all right, husbands, you do this in light of the gospel. And then he wrote to wives and said, wives, you focus on this and you respond this way in light of the gospel. 
he also gave differing directives to masters who were part of the church, and he spoke different directives to those who were considered slaves of that day, who were, uh, in, our, in our day, we would call them employees. And he directed Timothy to take differing approaches with confronting older men, younger men, older women, and younger women. So the gospel does not obliterate distinctive duties and roles for differing classes, different cultures, and genders. All of us are not interchangeable. We've not become people who are androgynous. You know, we just have nothing, nothing that sets us apart. No, we believe that still that retains, even though we are a Christian. What Paul is saying in verse 28, hear me out here, is that because of the gospel of grace, these distinctives do not create barriers to our fellowship. That's his main point here. All true believers are God's children. So I have a quote in your notes, again, by Philip Ryken. He says, the church of Jesus Christ is our first family, and in that family there are no second-class children. That's what we talked about last week. And so we're thinking further now, about, in light of that, that the gospel of grace not only makes a huge difference in our vertical relationship, that is, we are given a sense of honor and privilege, and we share in the, in the inheritance of God in Christ, that's our vertical relationship. So we are well-pleasing in God's sight through Jesus Christ in the gospel. It also affects our vertical relationships, on the hor- sorry, our horizontal relationships. It makes a huge difference. Now, parenthesis. I hope sometime later this summer to digress and take a whole sermon and devote it to the whole concept of how do we understand different roles within the church? the distinctions between men's roles and women's roles. I'm going to talk a little bit about that because I feel like this text has become a text that many people say, well, those roles now are one and the same. They use this text to to sort of prove that. I'd like to take a whole other sermon. I won't do that today. I want us to get back now to look at verse 28 and consider three things here very quickly, just expand on these three areas he talks about in understanding how the barriers no longer hinder us from fellowship with each other. First of all, the area of culture. The area of culture. It's difficult to grasp when you think about it, when he talks there about Jew or Greek. It's difficult for us to grasp the ethnic and cultural barriers that existed between Jew and Gentile in that time. The two groups were separated by this wide gulf. I mean a wide gulf of religious and cultural differences. They were huge, and Paul insists that the gospel has joined both Jew and Gentile together when both are united to Christ by faith. And I want you at this point to take your Bibles and look just at Romans chapter 15 and see how Paul explains this, page 1353 in your pew Bible, Romans 15. This is a fascinating text of Scripture against the backdrop of people who said, we have nothing in common with each other. Uh, one group looked at one, the other group and said, man, they don't know what's going on. There are two, one group saying, you people got too many rules and regulations and you're making too much of all this stuff. The other group, other group saying, you have no respect for God and you have a, a godless background and you know, you've dishonored God in many ways. And the two groups are very much different. Romans 15, verse 5. Against the backdrop of Paul dealing with weaker brothers and stronger brothers in terms of their conscience, 
listen to Paul unpack a prayer here and then talk about some practical principles in light of that. He says, now may the God, verse 5, now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement, and by the way, don't we need that when we're dealing with difficult people, people different from us? We need a God who can give us perseverance and encouragement to just keep working at this relationship. May the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be, what? Of the same mind with one another, according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord, notice that, with one accord, you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice what comes next. What's the next word? Therefore. Therefore, because of this desire to see us have the same mind, the same way of thinking about who we are in Christ, and realizing that God wants us together in this kind of oneness in Christ, he says, therefore, accept one another. Which is the same word you'd use for when you receive a gift. Take it. Unwrap it. Accept it. So the other people who are different from us are to be welcomed as a gift, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's the gospel of grace. In the gospel, God has accepted us. We were his enemies. We had nothing in common with him. And so God in Christ says, I am accepting you on the basis of what Christ has done. I welcome you. I receive you as a wonderful gift. Then notice what he says. For I say that Christ has also become a servant to Jews, he calls them the circumcision, on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. Do you see both groups there being addressed? Jew and Gentile, accept one another. That's what the gospel begins to encourage our hearts to do. Why? Because we've been accepted by God. How can I push these people away when God is not pushing me away? He's drawing me to himself through Christ. So the gospel unifies those who have a different racial history, a different cultural identity, and he draws them together around a common goal, the goal of glorifying Christ. Glorifying the God who rescued us from the consequences of our sin and made us members of his own household. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6, Paul affirms that once now something that was hidden has now been made known. He says the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the same promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Do you see how those things tie those people together? They're totally different in their backgrounds, in their identities, and yet they are the same body, fellow heirs, same promise. We're united to Jesus by faith, and therefore we follow the example of Jesus as he received us, even though we were outsiders, even though we were enemies, so the same is true in the gospel. 1 Peter chapter 2 mentions that the church, composed of all sorts of cultures, all sorts of, of uh, races, that we as a church are a chosen race. We are people who have been chosen by God to create a new race of people, a new cultural identity almost, as people who are now followers of Jesus. And so therefore we are displayed to the world the unifying grace of God. 
And one of the things that I really appreciate about our church, as we've been here now for a number of years, is that we came years ago, and I would say a vast majority of the church had a certain ethnic heritage uh, from a, a predominant part of us. Many of us were from a por- portion of Scandinavia, uh, given this is 25, 20 years ago. And now as I think about our church family, I'm seeing people who have much different backgrounds who are now joining and being a part of this particular fellowship. People from Ecuador and Italy and Nigeria and Guyana and Ukraine and Poland and Puerto Rico and Zambia and Venezuela and on and on and on. That's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. And what is that saying? That's saying that People who have differences in many ways that set them apart are saying, that's not what my primary identity is about. My primary identity is about Jesus Christ. And we are joined together in him. As we continue to see the divisions of our culture, and they are real, and they are prevalent, and they are powerful, I would hope that you would, in a spirit of concern, Realize that the underlying problem is the gospel, the gospel of grace. I am no better than anybody out there. I'm a sinner saved by grace, but I've been elevated, and therefore I have a motivation to what? To what? Accept other people as they come to Christ. All right, let's look at another component of these divisions and these barriers. It could also be done by class. Verse 28, he talks about there is neither slave nor free man. Boy, those were huge distinctions in that society. Whether you were a free man or whether you were a slave. And today we see examples of people who notice the vast differences in socioeconomic status that people have. And there are people who are raging against the rich and the wealthy who own highly profitable enterprises. On the other side of the spectrum, economic spectrum, there are many who just turn a deaf ear to the poor, to the plight of the poor, who have little of this world's goods and resources. And the early church, though, the early church, amazingly enough, was made up of people who were well-to-do masters, landowners, people who had resources and assets, and right in the same fellowship are people who were servants, bond servants, and who owned very little, if anything, And the two of them would come together and the gospel united them in Jesus. Now you say, why didn't Paul speak so strongly against slavery? He spoke the gospel which gave the impetus to help people change their hearts so that they would want to see a change in slavery. And so we've seen, again, the need for that to continue on in our day and age. But notice, if you will, a problem that, evo- that happened in the church in the, God, in the book of James. Turn over to James chapter 2. Can't you just see this image in James 2? Imagine you have a church. Most of us are common people here. And you have someone walk in the door who is like a Bill Gates or uh, someone who is extremely well-to-do. Everyone knows this person. The person is obviously quite well-off with many resources. And it's hard not to make much of a person like that, isn't it? 
Uh, our son is involved in working at the Ritz-Carlton, as I said a week ago or whenever it was, that uh, through their connections we were able to stay at the Ritz-Carlton, which is a very, very nice upscale hotel. And many of their clients are people who have no problem paying a hotel bill of $3,000 for one night. You know, that's just nothing to these people. Do you know you don't even get internet service in a room you pay $3,000 with? Can you believe that? I mean, it's unbelievable. They charge them for everything. Everything. Okay, anyway, the point here, I digress. James says, there's a problem. If you're going to welcome this guy into the church, and you notice he's got a big fancy ring on his finger, you know he's wearing very nice clothes. He says, the danger is when you let that guy in this church, and you say, here, sit in the best seat. You've lost sight of the gospel, my friend. You've forgotten the whole point of what? The gospel brings us down off to our lofty view of ourselves and says, I am merely a person who has been elevated by grace. Not because I did anything. I'm not better than anybody else. I am a person who desperately needs a Savior. And so grace says what? We're all in need of grace. <laughs> and so there's nobody greater or lesser in God's sight who's sitting there no matter what kind of clothes you're wearing or no matter what kind of money you have or what your job may be or whatever. So James says, if you're giving this guy the better seat and the guy who has very little resources, you say, well, listen, why don't you sit in the floor over here or in the corner in the back? He says, oh, man. That's, that, you are, at that point, you've lost sight of the fact that the people you've just said sit in the back in the, poor seat, in, the, in the worst seats, they are heirs of the kingdom. You've just said to them, get in the back of the bus when they're what? They equally share in the same inheritance you do in Christ. James 2.5, look what he says. James doesn't mince words here. He, he really humbles those people to realize how the gospel speaks of that. 2.5, he says, listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? You've lost sight of grace. Christian snobbery is never appropriate among the family of God. No one becomes a believer without admitting that you are a person who is spiritually bankrupt. You have nothing to offer God. That's the beginning step of embracing the gospel. And all of us have received salvation from Christ on the basis of grace. It is we must fight against the idea that because I am of a particular status and I live in a particular neighborhood, I'm not going to have anything to do with people who are not like me. We've got to fight against that because we need to see people from the point of view of grace. That whether they're hurting financially or whether they have much shouldn't make a difference as to whether we can fellowship with them in Christ. We have to work hard on that, folks. We have to work hard on that. Because oftentimes those people who don't have the same privileges of education, who don't have the same decent job and decent benefits and decent uh, level of status in terms of their economic situation, they are very challenging people who deal with very challenging lives. And they may require a lot of us. And sometimes we don't want to get messy. We don't want to get involved. We just want to be comfortable. And the gospel says, no, we must not let these barriers prevent us from fellowshipping because of Christ. Let me move on. 
Third area that Paul touches on, which again would have been a huge issue in that culture, in that time, he deals with gender, male nor female. Now in order to understand the radical changes brought about by the gospel, we have to bear in mind, <clears throat> this is a, just a huge statement for him to make. Uh, people would have been stunned to have read that first time, I'm sure, in that century. Jewish men were known to pray a prayer like this. Now listen to this. This is a prayer commonly prayed excuse me, by those in the first century. Blessed are you, Lord, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has not made me a woman. They would start off their prayer saying, Oh God, thank you, I'm not a woman. That doesn't, uh, watch it. That wasn't what I was looking for. what you say when you see your wife in labor. You say, thank God I'm not a woman. Obviously it is a problem because the view of women in that culture was they were almost, if not at the level of an object. They were a person, they didn't even have the dignity of being viewed as a person in the eyes of many people. And the New Testament sets forth an elevated view of women. If you read it through the understanding of the background of the time in which it's written, it is radical. It is radical in saying, lift up and view women differently than you used to. It sets forth the honor and respect that women are to receive because look at what Jesus did toward them. Jesus showed them respect and honor. It is the apostles who also similarly embraced and looked at the, the, the dignity of women and elevated their view. In the early church, Paul's views of women in the church were not chauvinistic. I can talk about that in a future week when I preach on the sermon. But rather, he recognized the equal value and dignity of women as members of the body of Christ. Look at the verse 27. And think this through just for a second. Without getting into all of the specifics of circumcision, which obviously is what? Male-related. Notice that, and again, all the Jewish folks were saying, you've got to be circumcised. We're going to be one of these people except for God. So verse 27 says, you were all baptized into Christ Jesus. You clothed yourselves with Christ. Guess what? Baptism, this is spiritual baptism, that is the Holy Spirit immerses us into Christ and we are identified with Christ when we come to Christ. That happens for male and female. It's not just male only. And I love the phrase that Peter uses there in the third chapter of his epistle when he urges husbands. He says this, show your wife honor, 1 Peter 3, 7, show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. I love that. They're speaking of what? Show her dignity and respect. And then you want to just have your socks blown off as to read the account of Jesus once again through the cultural understanding of that day. And watch Jesus sitting down at the well in Sychar, and he's thirsty, and it's a hot day. In the middle of the day, here comes a woman of ill repute. Nobody comes in the middle of the day. It's the worst part of the day to come fetch water. Nobody else wants else want anything to do with this woman. She shows up, and he engages a conversation, showing concern for her soul and her spiritual standing. And he is there interacting with her with what? Grace-filled gospel ministry to a person who has shown no respect by anybody in her culture powerful. John chapter 4. 
Well, there's so much more we can say about this, but I just want to say this again. We as a church, I hope, will always show the most highest respect for women, not to demean them, not to speak of them and refer to them and view them as objects, which so much of our culture does today. We are to show them the honor as fellow heirs of the grace of life. And if that is not happening in your experience as a church, you need to speak to other of us, others of us who are in leadership, myself or any of us, and you come and speak truth to us and speak truth to anyone else who's not doing that because that is not honoring to Christ if it's not happening in our fellowship. Now I want to bring this thing to a close here, finally. I want us to think about some implications here. I came across this very, very powerful statement about what now? If these things are true, if the barriers have been knocked down and we can then begin to have this sense of fellowship and interaction with each other, and we understand the gospel of grace, we know what it is to be joint heirs with Christ, if we know what it is to have the status of being a son of God, if we know what it is to have the riches of grace in the gospel, we're clothed with Christ. We have a new identity. Then, my friend, it's going to affect how we think and how we talk to each other with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Listen to Philip Ryken. He says this, We could never refer any longer to those people. If we understand the gospel of grace, no more those people. We would always have to say us. If we understand the gospel, it would change the way we treat each other. Jews would love Gentiles and vice versa. Blacks would show hospitality to whites and vice versa. Internationals would welcome nationals and vice versa. The poor would love the rich and vice versa. Women would respect men and vice versa. And then, rather than hindering our unity, the differences of race and rank and gender would become an opportunity to show the world what it means to be in Christ. May that be true. May our church show forth the glory of Christ by celebrating a diversity among us and a sense of collected unity and oneness and respect for each other and trying to show the world there is a better way. It's God's way. It's the gospel of grace. Let's pray. Our fathers, we bow before you this day, the creator of all the people groups of the world. We know that it must be true that some of us have grown up being taught to hate certain people. Some of us, Lord, learned from our earliest years to look down on others who were different from us. Many of us, Lord, have been drinking for many years of the, the world system of how it constantly is corrupting our view of other people, erecting all these barriers, having fellowship, respect, community, welcoming people who are different from each other. 
being threatened by people who have more power or more resources or others, Lord, who are of a different gender and all of the horrible history that has unfolded throughout the ages of disrespect and harassment, of misuse and abuse. But Lord, against the backdrop of all those things, how I pray, oh, how I pray that the gospel of grace will impact our hearts, Lord, the hearts of all of us being reminded of what we deserve from you and yet what you've done. You've accepted us in Christ. You've welcomed us. You've received us when we were your enemies and so different from you. Father, I pray that the gospel of grace will melt away a lot of our racial pride if it exists in any of us. I pray that you would help us, Father, to see the beauty of other cultures and other people and their expressions of their uniquenesses. I pray, Lord, for those of us who are on the different continuum of having much and having little in this world, Lord, help us to see each of us as being fellow heirs in Christ. And I pray, Father, that you might help us as a church family to show the world how glorious you are, that the glories of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, living in unity and harmony in differing roles, is being shown forth by your people in this place among men and women who are allowing the respect toward each other to signify that you indeed, Lord, have wowed our hearts with grace. Father, do your mighty work in us, I pray. Help us to fight against being squeezed into the world's mold. And help us, Father, to find hope and transformation in this world through the gospel of grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.